Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling, As He Is, So Are We. I am passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm passionate about His finished work. But not only am I passionate about Jesus and His finished work, I am passionate about helping the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, become emotionally well. Now, I do want to see the body of Christ walk in physical healing, absolutely. And I believe there's a connection. I believe the scriptures bear that out, that there's a connection between spirit, soul, and body. Of course, we know that. We are three in one, essentially. And they work together. There's a cohesiveness if the right word and the right revelation gets on the inside of you, you'll find that it makes it so much easier. There's a friend of mine who is a fairly young man, and he has an autoimmune issue. And it's in flare a big portion of the time. And when it flares up, it brings excruciating pain to his body. He has spent a great deal of money running to doctors, and he just has not been able to receive the relief that he's looking for. Yes, he's a praying man. He's a worship leader, actually. And I saw something pop up on his Facebook yesterday as I was preparing this message that I thought was pretty profound. He said these words. He said, when you're surviving, you can't dream. I understood exactly what he meant. Sometimes when we find ourselves in this mode that we are using every ounce of energy we've got to survive, we don't have time and we don't have the energy, we don't have even the desire to dream. So it resonated in my heart. And I said, man, I said, do you mind if I mention that in my message tomorrow? He said, that's fine. It just sucks the energy right out of you when you're battling something, especially in the emotional realm, but the physical realm as well. Let me start by this statement. I, I cannot wear Moses' ring and expect to become emotionally healthy, emotionally well. And that would be like me putting on an astronaut suit and thinking that I am qualified to fly the space shuttle. It's just not going to happen. They're incongruent with one another. Moses' ring does nothing for me. And I think you understand what I'm trying to say when I say Moses' ring. I'm talking about by living under the law, by living under the Old Covenant, by being married essentially to the Old Covenant. The bride of Christ cannot become emotionally whole Listen to me carefully until she begins to think like God and until she begins to speak like God. If I say something contrary to God's word, he's not going to agree with me if it's wrong. But if I say something that mirrors his word, if I say something that lines up with his word, it is going to release a power because we have this agreement that is working. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, these words, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, 
but his heart is not with you. This word heart is two different Hebrew words. One refers more to the spirit man, one refers more to the soul man, okay? But he says, as a man thinketh in his heart, whatever you think on in your heart, you kind of live out, you kind of become in a sense. Did you know that a rich man's wealth can be taken away in an instant? Very suddenly. But it would be one of the easiest things in the world for that man to become rich again. And you say, how is that? Because that man has learned the principles. He has learned the habits of thinking like a rich man. He has learned the principles of acting and speaking like a rich man. All that is gone is his money, but he still has the treasure called his mind. So it's not that difficult. All he needs is opportunity after that. And I felt the Lord say this to me, in the absence of thinking and speaking like God, the bride will walk and live in what I call the big four hitters, fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation. If we don't learn how to think like God, if we don't learn how to speak like God, you see, in that Proverbs 23 scripture, there are times where we say things, but our heart's not really into it. So these are just words, but there's no power without believing. You have to have faith. It is more than just mental assent. It is more than just words. You have to believe in the core. And that's what it talks about in one of those words. It's talking about the inner being of the man. It's talking about the core of the man. It's talking about the essence of the man. Deep, deep down inside where beautiful things are taking place in the spirit realm. When it crawls up out of your spirit and it empties into your soul and your soul begins to speak and release power into your mind and into your will and into your body and into your emotional realm. That's so important. And so I felt the Lord say that to me and communicate that to me. He says, in the absence of thinking and speaking like me, the bride will continue to walk. She will continue to exist. She will continue to live. It's not a salvation issue, but she will walk in this guilt and shame, fear and condemnation. When she fails, which she often does, she is programmed to run to the two tablets of the law rather than the two arms of Christ who can give her the relief she really needs. In the absence of thinking and speaking like God, listen to me carefully now, the bride, and that's you and me, will make decisions based upon her feelings, based upon her emotions, and hear this word, based upon her senses. We have five senses. We can see, we can smell, we can hear, we can taste, we can touch. That is a physical realm that we live in. But so many believers make decisions based upon feelings. I feel this way. Emotions, it plays with us. And our senses, the things we see, the things we hear, it sounds good. It feels good. In other words, she will operate from the soulish realm rather than the spiritual realm. The spirit man is the man we want to operate from. 
Why? Like my wife always says, he's always right. Soul man, not always right. Body is not always right. The mind, not always right. Emotions, wrong most of the time. Feelings, definitely wrong most of the time. She will operate from the soulless realm rather than the spirit realm. A lion's share portion of the body of Christ feels stuck. They feel stuck. If they would just be honest with you, listen, I'm a minister, they're honest with me. They might not be honest with you, but they are honest with me. They're just transparent with me. And I hear them indicating and telling me, I feel stuck. And just by their word, just the issues we're working through, I can tell they're stuck. And again, that's because they've been living from the soulish realm. They have not been living from the as he is, so are we in this world. That realm right there. Listen, friends, let me tell you something. I would not know the color of my eyes by just looking through them. I know the color of my eyes by looking into them. It would be impossible to know any other way. When the Lord dropped that in my heart a couple nights ago, I said, what is that? He said, you've got to look into the mirror, don't you, to see the color of your eyes. I said, you do. Absolutely. The confidence that I have that I am holy <laughs> and that I am perfect and that I am righteous, oh friends, does not come based upon how I feel. I don't wake up feeling holy <laughs> or perfect or righteous. I mean, where would you feel that at exactly? I feel good. I feel like my father loves me. But how do you feel holiness? How do you feel like daddy's made you perfect? How do you feel righteous? It doesn't come by how I feel. My feelings have a fading glory. We'll get into that in just a minute. They're like the space shuttle that's run off course. I believe that I am holy and I am perfect and I am righteous. Now listen to these next three words. In my spirit. Oh, I'm not holy all the time in my thoughts and in my ways, but in my spirit, which is what really, really counts. I believe I'm holy there, perfect there, righteous there in my spirit because I have looked into the mirror of God and we find that mirror in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and that mirror is found literally in the context of the new covenant. So what I'm getting at is if you start at verse 1 of chapter 3, you will find the apostle Paul is talking about the new covenant that we have. And so he talks about us looking into a mirror. Here's what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Look at those words. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Now, let me stop here for just a second. I love this scripture. The fact that it begins with the therefore Therefore means for that reason. That's what that word means, for that reason. In other words, it has covered some ground and it's challenging you to look back and see where you just came from. And he says, for that reason, 
Therefore, he says, since we have such a hope, what is this hope from? Where does it come from? It comes from knowing that our righteousness is by faith through the new covenant of grace. That's where your hope comes from. There's no hope outside of that. Hope is a fading glory outside of knowing that I'm righteous. But how am I righteous? I'm righteous through this covenant called grace. And it's by faith and by faith alone. We are righteous as Jesus is righteous. And nothing changes him. Nothing changes that righteousness in us. And I love this. It says that we have this hope. And it says because that hope we have... We are very bold. I know that righteousness is working in me because I am as bold as a lion compared to where I was 20 or 30 years ago. And it's not that practice made me perfect. Jesus did. <laughs> Listen, man, you can practice things in dumb ways. You know, like the old saying goes, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Well, Jesus practiced it perfectly on the cross and he made me perfect. So there we go. He says, we are very bold. And he says, we are not like Moses. In other words, he's saying, we have taken that ring off. Our identity is not in the law. Our identity is not in the do's and don'ts. The law strips you of your confidence. The law doesn't give you confidence. The law will take away your confidence because the law will always show you you failed again. You failed again. It will never compliment you. I don't care if you do something right a million times. You mess up one time. It will be right there to condemn you. Put a finger in your face and say you're a failure. And you reminded in those times, like I've said a million times, failure is an event, not a person. That's all it is. Failure is an event, not a person. And he says here, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. What was it that was passing away? The old covenant was just being instituted, but at the same time, it was on the way out. This is our type and shadow as we look back. Moses' fading glory was telling us in advance the old covenant isn't going to stay. It's just passing through. And we see that truth as we Fast forward into the New Testament and we look at scriptures like Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 where it talks about the old covenant was made obsolete. It was a passing and a fading glory. Amen. So continuing with what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying, but their minds were made dull for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Please do not rush this in your heart. Listen at what he's saying here. He said, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. The bride is veiled when the old covenant is read. Now it continues by saying, it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Are you in Christ? It's been taken away, friends. It will not leave any other way. Only in Christ is the old covenant taken away, is the old covenant mentality, is the old covenant heart taken away. Only in Christ. It says, even to this day, when Moses is read, what do you mean when Moses is read? Well, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The law didn't come until Exodus. Genesis was not under the Mosaic law. The law came in Exodus. 
and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses wrote those books right there. And so what they're doing is they're pointing you back to his writings. That's where the Ten Commandments came from, out of Exodus chapter 20. And you see 613 total Jewish laws come out of the Old Covenant, come out of that old operating software, that old operating system. And he says here, he said, even to this day, when you go back and you read Moses, you go back and read what he wrote, you go back and read the Old Covenant, he said, a veil still covers their hearts. You know what veils do, friends? I'm going to tell you. They're just so simple. Veils hide the face of the bride from the groom. That's what they do, temporarily speaking. I'm so happy to know that nothing is veiled with me. Everything is bare with me when I stand before my Father. He sees me in my entirety, and He loves me. In fact, He said, Son, you don't even have to walk down the aisle with a veil because the curtain has already been torn. The veil has already been torn. I've already taken care of that. You don't have to veil yourself anymore. I love you, bride. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, look at that, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face. You have no veil over you anymore. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What image is that? As he is, so are we. That image. We've already got that image in our spirit man. But when we look into the mirror of God's Word, and we look into the depths of God's Word, when we look into the heart, the core of God's Word, what's happening is there's a transformation that's taking place. Not in your spirit. He's 100% complete. That transformation is in your soul. Your mind, the area that you get so troubled in, the area that fear takes up residence in, the area of your emotions and your will, he says, as you keep looking, remember, he's in the context of new covenant here. He says, as you keep looking into the new covenant and realizing you are the bride and you're no longer veiled, he said, you're being transformed. You're getting the picture that, hey, turns out I'm just like my daddy. It turns out I'm just like Jesus. Oh, man, see, now, a lot of the body of Christ couldn't say that. They couldn't say those words. I have no problem. In fact, if you don't want to say them, I'll say them for you. I'll take them for you if you don't want them. We are being transformed into the same image. I like this, from glory to glory, just as, or as he is, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Moses had a fading glory under the old covenant called the law. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. The scriptures very plainly said he is lit up like a light bulb and he began to fade before the sunset. He had a fading glory, but under the new covenant of grace, you and me go from glory to glory. Jesus' glory never fades. Jesus' glory never fails. And Jesus' glory, friend, never falls apart. We have this confidence. As he is, so are we. No fading glory 
no failing glory, no falling apart glory, just glory upon glory upon glory, endless glory, boundless glory, glory upon glory. That's what's on the inside of us. And as that reality begins to work its way up out of our spirits into our soul, do you see how you get bold? Not arrogant, bold. Bold in Him, but yet gentle. One of the things I love most about meeting Christians that have really began to get this revelation of the finished work down is those ones that are so bold, but yet so gentle. I call them gentle giants. There's nothing I don't think on the planet more beautiful than that. Is to see someone that could do so much damage, someone that could do so much harm, yet they're a gentle giant in their spirit man. I want you to know something. You start talking to them about Jesus, you'll see the boldness come up out of them. You'll see the confidence come up out of them. They know exactly who they are in Christ. That spirit man flooded over into their soul, flooded over into their mind, will and emotions, their body, their senses. It flooded over into everything. Amen. We have this confidence, friends, as He is, so are we in this world. Now, that's what it says. It doesn't say in the world to come. It says in this world. Are you in this world? I'm in this world. He said you have this confidence in this world. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we find these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of my favorite scriptures. And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh like us and dwelt among us with us. Oh, and we have seen his glory. How did we see it? By looking into the heart of Jesus, by looking into the heart of the scriptures, by looking into the mirror of the new covenant of grace. That is the only way you can see this grace and truth. You have to look through the lens of the new covenant of grace. Friends, as he is, so are we. What is that? Full of glory, full of grace, and full of truth. We do not have Moses' fading glory. We have returned his ring. We have Jesus' glory, the Son that came from the Father, full of grace and truth as he is, so are we, full of grace and truth. Now, the wellspring that this message is birthed out of, the very scripture, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17. I like this scripture, oh man. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness. Didn't he just talk about you'd have boldness? He said, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Well, friends, if you can be bold on the day of judgment, you can be bold any day of the year. <laughs> that we have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, many believers have found themselves in an emotional conflict with that verse. They really have. They want this truth to be their reality, but they think it's beyond their reach. How can I be exactly like Jesus, they exclaim, as he is, so are we in this world. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus holy? 
Absolutely. As he is, so are we in this world. Jesus is holy. We are holy. Look at the scripture there. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I love that. I love that scripture. Oh, let me read it again. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ once for all. Does it say we've been made holy? We've been made holy. The Mosaic law, or what we know as what was called the Old Covenant, declared a man holy through his own obedience and sacrifices. If you could obey everything and you could do your annual sacrifices, you were declared holy. God declares us holy through the obedience and the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's more than a philosophical difference. Someone has flipped a coin here. It's on the back side of it. It's totally opposite. Man was responsible at one time to keep laws and make himself holy and to do his sacrifices and be acceptable. But through the obedience of Christ, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, he's the one. It was his body that made us holy. And what I love about that scripture, it says, and by that will we have been made holy. And it tells you how it happened through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. The once for all does not just refer to his sacrifice, but it refers to you've been made holy once for all. That's actually how it reads in context that by that will, we have been made holy once for all. Now, Jesus is holy, we are holy. Let me ask you another question. Is Jesus perfect? Absolutely. There should be no hesitation whatsoever. Of course, Jesus is perfect. As he is, so are we in this world. Jesus is perfect. We are perfect. Want a scripture on that? Let's move up just four scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Listen, if I die before Jesus comes and I go before any of you guys, I want a Bible left in my casket laying on my chest and I want it open to that scripture right there and I want someone to take a highlighter and highlight it. That is one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible, right there. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Beautiful scripture. Timeless truth. Awesome scripture. And I want everybody to walk by my still body and go, man, that man is relying on one thing. He's relying on Jesus' once for all sacrifice that made him perfect forever. Don't forget that. I don't plan on going anywhere. I don't plan on checking out. But I've thought about it. I said, Lord, if there was one scripture that I would say my confidence has been put in, and I would want everybody to see it, would be that one right there. Now, Jesus is holy. Jesus is perfect. Is Jesus righteous? Absolutely. Jesus is righteous as he is, so are we in this world. Jesus is righteous, we are righteous. We find that truth in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. We're holy, we're perfect. 
we are righteous in our spirit as he is, so are we in this world. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been apprehensive? I mean, just a little tight, just a little nervous about meeting someone for the first time. And you've got wind that that person is far more educated than you. I mean, they just have a long list of education and you think, what can I contribute to the conversation? Come on, be honest with me. I know you've been there. I've been there before. I just think, what am I going to be able to say to you? You know, you know more than I know. Has that ever made you nervous? It's made me nervous. Have you ever been apprehensive about meeting someone that you perceive to be more spiritual than you? I mean, much more spiritual than you. Man, I mean, what can you contribute to a conversation? Yeah, I know everything you know. Plus, I know a million things more. Do you ever feel that way? Have you ever been apprehensive? You're a little tight, a little nervous about meeting someone that you perceived was really wealthy. Oh, man, they were millionaire, billionaire, whatever it may be. Does that bother you a little bit? Come on, be honest with me. What does that perceived disparity do to people? There's the question. It intimidates them. And so it is with many believers as they come to the end of themselves at times. And as they come to the end of their rope, as they say, as they come to the end of their lives, they are intimidated about meeting God. And I'll tell you why. It's because religion has taught them that they are not as holy as Jesus is. Religion has taught them they are not as perfect as Jesus is. Religion has taught them they are not as righteous as Jesus is. Friends, you and I never need to be anxious about meeting a loving Heavenly Father and Him not accepting us because He thinks we're different than He is. I've come by today to tell you and remind you and reinforce in your hearts today as He is, so are we in this world. And that is the journey I want to take us on this morning through the balance of the message, a journey that literally paints us into the family portrait of God. Amen? Now, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that I have been commissioned to paint a picture for someone. Of all things, they've asked me to paint them a picture of a chicken. They've given me a week to do it. They are an art lover, so they know art when they see it. They put me in a studio. I have the finest lighting. I've got the easel. I've got every canvas I need in case I mess up. I've got the finest brushes money can buy. I've got all the colors under the rainbow at my disposal. Now, the last time I checked, there were 168 hours in a week. And suppose I set aside 100 hours to paint that crazy chicken. <laughs> and now, the big reveal. The time has come. The art lover and I stand in front of a veiled painting and then the veil is removed and the painting is revealed. That art lover would take one look at my chicken and he or she would reach a very quick conclusion. And the conclusion they would reach is Mark doesn't know the first thing about painting. Honestly, they would. That's why I always hated to play Pictionary. Pictionary is one of the most embarrassing games in the world if you don't know how to draw. I mean, because you try to draw the simplest little thing and people just, they don't get it. That art lover might say things like, the head is not in proportion to the body. They might say things like, the legs are too short, the colors are not right. And you know what? They might be right on all those things. But here's the way the Holy Spirit said it to me one thing is for sure. Listen to me carefully. One thing I'm absolutely certain of, the chicken that is on that canvas is the same chicken that was in my head. 
You need to meditate on what I just said for a second there. The chicken that's on that canvas is the chicken that was in my mind, the chicken that was in my head. You see, if I would have had a different chicken in my head, then that chicken would have ended up on the canvas. You can only paint that which is in your mind. If you can't see it, you can't paint it. If you can't see it, you can't draw it. That's why artists, it's not just practice. They see a picture, they see an image, and they have this ability to lock in the details. I just breeze over it. I tried drawing a chicken a couple of days ago, and that chicken was the most pitiful thing. I mean, you could tell it was some sort of bird, but I, and it was an awful-looking chicken. I just thought, maybe I should try this before I preach this. It was an awful-looking chicken. I can only paint what I see in my mind. I can't paint a picture of that which is not in my head, that which is not in my heart. You see, my hand doesn't have an ounce of brains. It has no creativity whatsoever. And in fact, if you took the greatest artist in the world, his hand has zero brains and zero creativity. That hand gets its orders from its head. Otherwise, the hand would get up in the middle of the night and go draw. Listen, I know this is such a silly thing. I almost feel embarrassed in a sense to be using something so ridiculous, but I want you to see where I'm going with this thing about you've got to get images in your heart. You've got to get images in your head. You've got to get those images in your spirit to spill over into your soul, man, because he's right. He draws the perfect chickens. He draws the perfect people. He draws the perfect heart. He draws holiness and perfection and righteousness. And when you see that picture in all its beauty, all its robustness, you say, I get it. I got it. And that's what began to happen to me with the message of grace. I didn't get it at first. I kept throwing away the canvases. I kept throwing them away until one day I said, the image is there now. It's stuck in my heart. I felt the Lord say this to me. Not only do hands get their orders from their head, but tongues get their orders, their directions from your mind, your heart, your will. Your tongue, it doesn't just speak on its own. My mind is behind it. So if I want to paint a better portrait with my hand, then I have to paint a better picture in my head. If I want to speak words of grace over myself, and I want to speak words of grace over other people, then I have to get a better picture of what grace looks like. And that's what we've been doing at Triumphant Grace Ministries. We've been reshaping the way people see God, reshaping the way people see grace. Not that it's weird and different, but it's more flavorful. It brings out that which was suppressed, that which was hidden for all those years in religion and indoctrination and ideologies. We are reshaping the way you see based upon the scriptures. And so ask yourself the question, why is that important? Why is that so important? Because the way people see God has everything to do with the way you see yourself. And the way you see yourself has everything to do with the way you speak. And so you can get caught in this cycle that you say dumb stuff, and then you think dumb stuff, and then you live dumb stuff, and then you say dumb stuff, and then you think dumb stuff, and you live dumb stuff. you got to get off that dumb wagon eventually and say, no, I've got to paint a better picture. Listen, the evidence that the picture is not right is our words. 
The evidence I can't paint is the canvas. <laughs> the way people see themselves and the way they see Papa God influences the words that come out of their mouths and the words that come out of their mouths impact lives and bring health to our souls and our bodies. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. The Bible says these words, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Listen, I know this is written during Old Covenant age, but that's a principle that's still true. This is not one of the Ten Commandments. This is a principle that is timeless. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. If you want to excel in the way you think, and the way you feel, and the way your emotions are, you've got to let your spirit man be in charge. You've got to allow him to be the force that's driving your words, allowing your words to come forth. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. If our words or our hands have to add anything to Jesus' finished work, then it's not grace. So I'm not just saying you just take your hands, you just take your words, you just take your mind, you do anything you want. No. If our hands and our mouths have to add anything to Jesus' finished work, in other words, to make us right in his eyes, then it is not grace. Grace is unmerited, undeserved, unearned, unwarranted favor by God. That's what grace is. That's what it is. <laughs> you had no contribution. There's a good reason that Hagar, Hagar was Sarah's handmaiden. There's a good reason that Abraham told Hagar and his firstborn Ishmael to hit the road. There was a good reason for that. And I don't think that was an easy thing. I think Abraham really toiled over this thing, but he knew it was right. That was his firstborn son. And he had to put a backpack on each of them, Hagar and Ishmael, and send them off into the desert. There's good reason for that. That narrative is found in the book of Genesis. And when the Apostle Paul was searching for words, I believe that he felt best explained this separation of covenants because he was all about showing us how the covenants have been separated. The old covenant's been made obsolete. We live under a new covenant of grace. And so when he was searching for words that best explained, how can I explain this to them? The separation of covenants. And how can I explain this in a way that brings Christians, these new converts, out from underneath the bondage of slavery? He reached all the way back into Genesis chapter 21, and he borrowed Abraham and Hagar's storyline so that he could write that into the letter to the Galatians. I want you to see these words. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, and then verse 30. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Now, what he's done, if you're not familiar with that story in Genesis, he has painted with a broad brush. You go, oh, I don't know exactly what you're talking about. He says, his son by the slave woman, that's Ishmael from Hagar. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Abraham put on an astronaut suit and tried to fly a space shuttle all by himself. Friends, that's not faith. That's flesh. That's just soul. 
He said that son was born by the slave woman according to the flesh. What was he doing? He was operating by emotions. He was operating by feelings. He was operating by senses. He wanted a child as bad as Sarah did, but she was barren at the time. But his son by the free woman, that's Sarah, the mother of grace. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Friends, we have been born anew, born afresh into Christ because all of his promises are yes and amen. We are born by a promise. Daddy, I'll die on a cross. But when they come to you, Daddy, it's going to be just by faith that they put their trust in me. We don't need anything else, right, Daddy? No, we don't need anything else, son. All right, Daddy, I've got your promise. I'll go to the cross. Beautiful. And then he says, these things are being taken figuratively. Now watch how he explains this. I think this is some of the most beautiful language in the Bible. He said, the women represent two covenants. Who are the women? Hagar and Sarah. He said, they represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. That's where the law was given, the Ten Commandments. And bears children who are to be slaves. And then he unveils it. He tells you her name. He said, this is Hagar. You don't have to fill in the blank. You don't have to guess who this might be. He tells you, this is Hagar. That's where that son came from. He's painted now with a fine tip brush. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Man, that is just such strong language. But what he's doing, he's not throwing people under the bus. He's taking these two women, he's taking these two sons, and he's showing us a more profound truth, which is the covenants that we have, the old covenant and the new covenant. And he says, listen, when it comes to the old covenant, I want you to make it like a son. Under the old covenant, the type and shadow was Hagar and Ishmael being sent out into the desert, being led away. And so that's all been done. In the new covenant, when Jesus was crucified and when he was resurrected, the old covenant was sent back out into the desert. The son of the old covenant was led away when he was crucified and then resurrected in new life. So if a person sees God's love as conditional, if you see his grace as exhaustible, if you see his forgiveness as unattainable, then that person will live their entire life wallowing in fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation. There is no way that 1 John 4, 17, as he is, so are we, will ever become their reality. If you always see God's love as conditional, you see his grace as, man, it's exhaustible. If you see his forgiveness as unreachable, unattainable. You'll never walk in the freedom that the Apostle Paul is literally laying his life down and ultimately will for this message to go forth. 3 John, verse 2. I love this scripture. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. Did you notice that the Apostle Paul is not addressing the spirit man here? The spirit man is a finished work. The veil has been removed on the spirit, but many believers are still wearing the veil over their face and soul. John is talking about the body and soul, or John is talking about the body and the senses here. 
He's saying, beloved, I wish above all things, I pray, some versions say, above all things, that you would prosper. That word prosper means I want you to be successful. He says, I want you to succeed in life. I want you to be successful above all things. Where, he said, it's in your soul that you would prosper. And he says, and be in health, where you have health at. You have health in your body. You have health in your soul. And he said, above all things, because that's all that's left of the man. The spirit's been taken care of. What do we got left? We got a soul and a body. And he says, above everything else, all your other plans, all your other hopes, all your other dreams in life. He said, above all things, he said, I want you to prosper and be in health. I want your soul to be in tune with the spirit. Quit making decisions based on how you feel and how you think about things. Learn to hear the unforced rhythms of grace come up out of your spirit, man, and minister. He sounds a lot like us, believe it or not. But there is no substitute for his word. What does his word say? I'm going to tell you something. You show me a person that's in trouble emotionally, and I'll show you a person that's out of the word. It happens that way, man. It does. Or you show me a person that is still in the word, but in trouble emotionally, I'll show you a person that's probably not filtering the scriptures through the new lens of grace. Did you know that 70% of all lottery winners are broke within three to five years? I'm talking about ones that win 200 million, 300 million, 400 million. All 70% are broke within three to five years. And they are 50% more likely to file for bankruptcy than the average person. Now, you got to ask the question, why is that, don't you? I mean, come on, you got to ask the question. Curious minds want to know. Because after their windfall, after what you would call a fresh start in life, they continued to wear Moses' ring. They didn't change their mindset. Wealthy for a time in their bank account, but still bankrupt in their heart. The flesh led them to digesting rather than investing. They consumed their wealth upon their own lusts. We see that truth in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus said these words, he said, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Man, if a lottery winner would really take it to heart, I'm telling you, he'd have something there. Store up your treasures in heaven where there is no crime. Why do so many believers end up frustrated in their Christian walk? Now you say, Mark, come on. I'm not frustrated. Well, then I'm not talking to you. But listen, outside of this church, we minister to people all week long. And we know, I mean, all over the world. And we know people are frustrated. And why do so many walk away from the institution we call the church? These are good questions, aren't they? I mean, don't you want to know why do people just walk away from the institution of the church? The best way to understand that answer to the question is to get inside their head. And we have done that. That's the best way to do that. And so we ask people, we talk to people, we minister to people all week long. And we hear things like, it's because the church keeps telling them they have to wear Moses' ring. How does that sound in reality? It's about do's and don'ts. You've got to keep doing. They give you checklists. You've got to do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. That's wearing Moses' ring. Well-meaning ministers put the responsibility of holiness, 
perfection and righteousness on the believer rather than the revelation that these attributes came to us as wedding gifts from Jesus. That's our wedding gift. Holiness. Perfection in my heart, my spirit. Righteousness. What a gift he gave us. There are between 300 and 400,000 Protestant churches in the United States of America and tens of thousands of ministers will stand in the pulpits even today. They're well-meaning men and women and all they can do is paint the picture of Jesus as they know him. All they can do is paint the picture of salvation as they know it. And as much as you know we can paint by numbers, you know, you can buy kits that says paint by numbers, we paint pictures by words. We paint pictures of his altogether loveliness. We paint pictures of his unconditional love and grace through the scriptures. So the question, should ministers have the liberty to paint Jesus any way they feel like painting Jesus? Let's ask the Apostle Paul that question and see what he would say. I think he would say something like this. Yes, as long as as you don't add conditions to the finished work of the cross. You paint him with blue eyes if you want to, and you can paint him with brown eyes. You want to paint him with long hair, you can paint him with a flat top. You paint him any way you want to paint him, but don't you add anything to the cross. But so many people do! Because we're programmed, we've got to keep adding, adding, adding more to what Jesus has done. It's no longer grace if you keep adding to it. Oh, you say, Mark, well, you're going to give them a license of sin if you talk like that. No, friends. The Bible says it's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodly passions and worldly lusts. In other words, that's sin. Grace is the one that teaches us to say no to that stuff. Come on. The Apostle Paul visited the Galatians on at least two occasions before he penned the letter to them. In other words, he was on a missionary journey when he went to see them. And when the Apostle Paul first visited the Galatians, he discovered a people that were wearing Moses' ring. He discovered a people that were shooting for the moon rather than reaching for the sun. He bumped into people that were emotionally unhealthy, people that were high-fiving the Ten Commandments rather than looking into the mirror that contains the glory of God. So what was Paul's response. Listen to me. I'll tell you what his response was. Now listen, think of it in terms of words. But the Apostle Paul got out his paintbrushes and he painted the most vivid picture of the resurrected Christ you could ever paint. I don't know how many days that went on. I don't know exactly what that sounded like. But he said, listen, I want to paint a picture of him. I want to paint a picture of this resurrected Christ. I want to paint a picture of him in living color. The Jesus, the same Jesus that he encountered on the road to Damascus, that's the Jesus that he painted. He made the message of grace and he made the person of grace, Jesus, so irresistible, so much as the Galatians put their trust in Jesus Christ apart from works. They totally abandoned Moses and his reign. So, when the Apostle Paul left the Galatians, he left the Galatians with the truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be altered. 
You do anything you want with him, but don't you alter that message of salvation by faith in Christ. Don't you alter the message of a resurrected Christ. Don't you alter the message of righteousness by faith. Don't alter that message. And then, in Paul's absence, shortly after he was gone, the Judaizers came. Paul called them intruders and false brothers is what he called them. The Judaizers came through Galatia, and the first question they asked the Galatians is, where's your ring? Oh, it didn't sound exactly like that. It sounded more like, have you been circumcised? <laughs> we're looking for a ring. They said, hey, where are the Ten Commandments at that were here when we were here before? Have you been keeping the law of Moses? This is kind of what was going on in this conversation. You see, the Judaizers knew about the Apostle Paul's reputation. His reputation would enter towns before he would even get there. Oh, they knew about Paul. And they knew better than to paint over the Apostle Paul's painting of grace by faith. So they did the next rottenest thing. They got out their own paintbrushes. And they said, you see this painting that the Apostle Paul left behind? <laughs> he must have been in a hurry because he forgot to put Moses in there. And they painted Jesus' arm around Moses. And they listen, Jesus loves Moses, believe me, he does. But he doesn't need Moses after the cross. They painted a picture with Moses in there. They said, listen, we don't see the tablets, the two tablets in here, the Ten Commandments. Let's paint them in there. We don't see circumcision in this picture. Let's paint that in there. And this was the Apostle Paul's response to the Galatians. Remember, he is writing them a letter. He's given them the sandwich technique. He started out all sweet and warm and fuzzy, and he ends it with sweet, warm, and fuzzy. But in the middle, chapter 3, man, he just brings out the double-barreled shotgun, lets them have it. Why would he do this? Listen, man, anytime you have put yourself in the danger that the Apostle Paul been, he had been beaten three times, 39 lashes, and when they beat you, they beat you near death. He had found himself shipwrecked several times. He had been stoned and left for dead. The Apostle Paul had been used, abused, and always refused. And he said, listen, I know this Christ. He's painted a picture in my heart. He's worth laying my life down for. This means nothing to me. So I'm going to write you a letter. And listen, like a good daddy, I'm going to have to let you have it. And this is what he says to him. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, what is the gospel of Christ? Let me ask you that question. What is the gospel of Christ? To live in the grace of Christ. That is the gospel, friends. To live. When you live, you walk and live and have your being in Christ. That is the gospel, to live in Christ. The ultimate goal, the ultimate victory is to live in Christ and to live from Christ. Live through Christ and let him live through you. And so then he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. As we have already said, and now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel 
other than what you accepted. What did you accept? You accepted the gospel to live in the grace of Christ. And he said, if anybody comes along, tries to preach anything contrary to that, he said, let them be under God's curse. I don't care who they are. He said, let them be under God's curse. Man, this is tough stuff. This is in your Bible. I'd encourage you to go home and read Galatians and study it, man. Meditate on it. Just ruminate on this thing, man. It, this is powerful stuff. The Apostle Paul saying there is no other gospel than to live in Christ. Oh, then he works his way to that third chapter. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, you foolish Galatians. Listen, I've been saved for more than 24 years. And my mama taught me at a very young age, even though I didn't know Jesus, I went to church. And my mama taught me at a young age, don't you ever call another man a fool. They have foolish ways, but don't, don't you ever call a man a fool. It's like raka or something like that in the Greek. And uh, you're going to be in danger of hellfire, son, if you call somebody a fool. And so when I used to read this going, man, the apostle Paul, Lord, does he get away with that? And I don't get away with that. He just called these guys foolish. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians. He says, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He said, listen, I painted him with a fine-haired brush. You saw him in all of his goodness, in all of his glory, clearly portrayed as crucified. There was no question about the cross. There was no question about the benefits of the cross. That's the way I painted him. He said, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? In other words, he's saying, did you receive the Spirit by doing or did you receive the Spirit by being, by believing? He said, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? That's the only way you can begin in Christ, friends. You can't begin any other way. You don't work your way into Christ. You either are in Christ or you're out of Christ. You have to begin by the Spirit. He said, after you began by the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, are you trying to produce your own Ishmael? I want you to look at this word foolish. In the Greek, it is the word aniatos. Aniatos. When we think of foolish, we think of unintelligent. Foolish. But I got to tell you something. Back in those days, everybody was unintelligent. Nobody went to school. The Apostle Paul was in the elite. Pharisee of Pharisees, highly skilled, highly trained, great mentors. But most of the people could not read and write. So to call somebody foolish, which means unintelligent, seems to make sense. But friends, let me tell you something. By implication, in other words, when you look in the Greek concordance, by implication, the word means sensual. In other words, when he said, you foolish Galatians, he was literally saying, you sensual Galatians. When you look up the word sensual in the Urban and Merriam-Webster dictionaries, this is what it says about sensual. It says, anything that makes you feel good. That which is fleshly. It relates to the five senses. It deals with emotions and feelings. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul was getting at. So when the Apostle Paul said, you foolish Galatians, he was saying, listen, I'm not here just to call you names. He was saying, you're sensual. You went back to operating by feelings and emotions rather than by faith in the finished work of the cross. You went back. No, 
no, no, I'm laying my life down to propagate this gospel. Christ living in you, gospel. As he is, so am I, gospel. Holiness, perfection, righteousness. I'm laying my life down for this. And what did you do? And listen, man, he still loves these guys, but he's saying, what did you do? You went back to how you feel. You went back to your emotions. I'm telling you, they'll lie to you. <laughs> he's saying basically this. I came through Galatia on two separate missionary journeys, and I invested my blood, sweat, and tears in you guys, and I painted a picture of the darling of heaven, Jesus Christ. I didn't paint him with a broad brush. I painted him with a fine tip brush. Moses was not in my painting. The Ten Commandments was not in my painting. Circumcision was not in my painting. The Judaizers were not in my painting. And furthermore, your emotions and your feelings were not in my painting. You have forgotten what color your eyes are because you are no longer looking into the mirror that brings the glory of the Lord, the glory that transforms you into the same image of as He is. So are we in this world. You allowed the Judaizers to come along and you allowed them to cater to your senses. You allowed them to serenade your emotions and feelings. You gave them permission to play with your heartstrings and to slip Moses' ring back over your finger, you foolish and sensual Galatians. I told you when I was here that it was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And what did you do? You started operating by feelings and emotions. Friends, listen, why am I so passionate about this? Because the body of Christ can get stuck here. Rather than believe God's word, you are forever forgiven. You are forever perfect. You are forever holy. You are forever righteous. Nothing can undo that. You show me one scripture that shows that that can be done. I'll walk out of here today. I'll never pastor this church again. You cannot prove that in the word of God, but I can the other way. I'm passionate about this too. Listen, man, if I didn't care about people and I didn't care about God, I'd be at home watching Bugs Bunny do something today. I don't know. I wouldn't be here. I care about God. I care about this relationship. I care about Him. I care about people. And I care that they walk in freedom. I care that they walk free from all this bondage of guilt, fear, shame, and condemnation. And then the Apostle Paul begs the question. He says, who bewitched you? Now, that's not a word we use too often. Who bewitched you? The word bewitched comes from the Greek word baskino. It means in the Greek to fascinate. It literally means to lead into evil doctrine. Those are not my words. I get these words right out of the Strong's Concordance. And when you look up the word fascinate, here's what it literally says especially of a snake, deprive a person or animal of the ability to resist or escape by the power of a look or gaze. Oh man, that, there's a mouthful right there, friends. My daddy grew up in the mountains of Virginia and West Virginia. He spent all his formative years there. And I remember from a young age him telling me the story. He said, son, because we lived there too. And he would tell us all the stories about the mountains, you know, including all the snakes. 
He said, son, one day he said, I was just sitting out on the porch one day and he said, I, I watched a snake coming across the way. And he said, that snake had the ability to climb up on a wooden fence and he was just sunning himself on top of that fence. And he said, it wasn't long, a little bird flew in a tree right next to that fence. And he said, I watched that snake lift himself up and began to go in a circle like this, just kind of rotate in a circle, almost like a cobra. He said, he was doing that. And that little bird began to watch him. That little bird began to get fascinated with him. What are you doing? And he said, I watched that little bird get almost spellbound. It was like it was in a trance. And he said, that little bird was just shaken. And he said, once that snake had fascinated that little bird, he said, that snake crawled off that fence and that snake was long enough. It wasn't a very big tree. He said, it was winding its way up that tree to get that bird. And he said, I saw that. And he said, I hate snakes and I like birds. He said, I picked up a rock or stick and I threw it over there at that tree. And that little bird came to its senses and it flew away. Do you see what he's getting at the Apostle Paul when he said, who has bewitched you? Who has fascinated you? He's saying, listen, you spent too much time looking at something that was charming. You spent too much time looking at something that you thought was fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? The old men of the old covenant, Elijah and Elisha and all these powerful men of God, well, they were under the old covenant. Surely I should be doing that. No, the cross made the difference. The old covenant has been made obsolete. Get that in your heart. If anybody argues with you, you take them to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. It specifically says the old covenant was made obsolete. That means you can't get parts for it anymore. Friends, it's been made obsolete. But when I was thinking about that word fascinate, I thought, is that true? Do snakes fascinate their prey? The only story I've got is my daddy's story. Is that true? And I Googled that on YouTube because I figured you can find about everything on YouTube. I said, snakes, fascinating prey. And sure enough, there it is. And there's a hidden camera of a barn scene. And there's a snake laying over there in the corner. It's kind of a black and white looking thing. And there's a, a nice big fat frog. He's just kind of moving around a little bit. And that snake wants that frog. But that frog ain't going to go by that snake. So what does that snake do? He sticks his tongue out and he just lays it out there. And he moves it like it looks like a centipede. And that frog is watching that. And he thinks, that's breakfast. Two hops. Those were the last two hops he ever made in his life. He was so fascinated by that. I'm telling you, the enemy will fascinate you through your emotions and your feelings the law will fascinate you through the emotions and feelings. We've got to stand upon what is true. The Bible says Jesus came by grace and truth. That's what's in our spirit. And allow that which is in our spirit to work its way out into our soulish man and into our body. So I understand the fascination with Moses' law. It gives us a checklist, doesn't it? So that we can develop a metric of how well we're performing. I've heard people say that. I'd rather be under the law. The Christians tell you that, some of them. I'd rather be under the law because each day I get a, a checklist and I can develop my own metric. This is how I'm doing. I'm doing pretty good. I got everything done today. All the do's, I got them done. All the don'ts, I didn't do. Friends, that's old covenant. And it'll take you to an early grave. Summarizing what the Apostle Paul said when he said, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, he literally said it like this. He said, folks, 
you listened to the Judaizers and they taught you how to operate again by your feelings and emotions. They fascinated you into taking their bait. But I've got good news for you. Our Papa has a way out for you. The Bible says, There is no temptation that has taken man, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will always make a way for us to escape, that we may be able to bear it. He always finds a way for us to escape, even when we get into the traps ourselves. But I'm telling you, you can avoid them by letting it work out of your spirit. And then what the Apostle Paul does is he spends the next three chapters of Galatians reminding them of their covenant by grace through faith and their freedom that's found in Christ. So he doesn't leave it by saying, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He says, listen, now let's go on a journey. Let me remind you, you got to live out of the Spirit. Let me remind you of your position in Christ. Let me remind you of the new covenant. Let me remind you of this grace. Friends, life cannot be found outside of the gospel. The gospel is what gives the hope of eternal life. This hope gives us boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are simply these. The gospel of grace has been given to the bride of Christ and she has the privilege of walking around with an unveiled face so that she can behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and her soul is being transformed into the same image of as he is, so are we. Moses' ring was left in Egypt when he left. Hagar and Ishmael had been led away into the desert. The old covenant law was made obsolete, and the wedding veil was torn when Jesus was crucified. We have access to the Holy of Holies, namely Jesus Christ. In the heart of Papa God, the bride of Christ was made holy. She was made perfect. She was made righteous through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are full of glory. We are full of boldness. And we are full of grace and truth. This grace gives us the strength to begin to dream once again. It gives us the strength. It gives us the desire to go ahead and dream once again. How did all of this happen to us? I'll tell you how it happened. Everything that is in Jesus became ours through the finished work of the cross so that we could boldly declare, as he is, so are we in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daddy, I want to just praise you and I want to thank you for your goodness. I want to thank you, Father, that this is a message not just for this church, but this is a message for everybody to hear, Daddy. And I pray, Father, that we would take this message to heart, that we would come to the revelation, the realization, the truth. We'd be honest with ourselves that if we haven't been living from the Spirit, man, it's not too late. I want to thank you, Father, that your love is not conditional. Your grace, your beautiful grace, Daddy, is not exhaustible. And your forgiveness, Daddy, is for eternity. And I thank you, Father, as we put our arms around all that truth, and that truth puts its arms around us. The only thing we're fascinated with, Daddy, is by this gospel of grace, this wonderful gospel of grace. We don't need Moses' law. 
Daddy, we respect Moses. We respect what his law was there for. His law was there to bring people to Christ. It is the gospel of grace working in a heart that teaches us to live lives that people can see. I want to thank you, Father, that you're painting a portrait with our words as we encounter people here and there. You are painting a portrait, a portrait of all together lovely Jesus in all of his goodness and grace. And so thank you for that, Father, as that truth drips into our heart and forces out all these old mindsets, renews our strength that we may begin to dream again. In Jesus' name, amen.